Welcome, everyone. I'm so excited to tell you about this podcast. It's called The DK Project, but it's really The Darren Show. The DK Project is a radio show, but without the radio. So sit back, buckle up, and enjoy the ride. Let's go! Welcome, podcast listeners, to another edition of The DK Project. Special episode coming your way today. We've got Stephen Galloway on the line. He is up to some big things here. I, I've, been, I've been doing my homework here. You are a uh, you're a mover and a shaker. I uh, I like it. I um, I think the the main reason uh, that we're talking is you're now moved into the university world. Is this right? I've moved and shaked or shaken all my way from Hollywood to you know, academia, very different environments exactly. in some ways, not, not every way. They're both political. Well, here's the thing. I love the idea of having you on because we're talking about the clash of two different worlds here, but you've got quite a little background before we jump into Chapman, Chapman University here. You, uh, where did where'd you grow up? No, <laughs> not just outside of England, just outside London. London, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. So, so, and, and then you went to, to, uh, university at Cambridge. Yep. How, how was that? Now that's whole different. I mean, you know, uh, obviously Chapman university here is, is modern, real sleek, but Cambridge is like old school castle, like, Big time. And and they don't let just anybody in there. Well, they let me in, so maybe they do. Well, it was well, wonderful and idyllic and uh, romantic. Oh, uh, you must have some amazing memories. Is that it has a system of education, which is really one-on-one. Okay. One professor with two or three in a group. The Oxbridge tutorial system. It's very personalized. Um. I- I got to think with that kind of a degree, you can go anywhere, right? Well, everybody needs a job and they come out. And you know what it is. This is what students don't expect. You come out having spent a few years doing amazing things, directing films, producing them, staging plays, and then you need a job. Yeah. Pretty much everybody starts at the bottom and should. Yeah. But I got to think that having Cambridge on your resume, as opposed to my University of Minnesota, you're maybe moving up towards (laughs) the top, right? Well, it was lucky for me because it helped me win a scholarship to come to America. Okay. And went to two film schools. Uh, It was less lucky in that the condition attached to the scholarship was that you then had to leave America for a few years. Why is that? And I ended up moving to Paris. You know, it's the thing that was done because a lot of third world countries were sending talent here and they weren't going back. So there was a real brain drain. So the visa requirement wasn't to prevent those students from staying in America was to make sure they went and worked in their home countries. I actually went to Paris and worked in French television and had this extraordinary experience of having everything go my way and then fall off a cliff. Uh, How long did you Uh, have to do that for? I lived there for two years uh, with nothing, you know, and you look back on, on experiences like that and you can see what you learned from them. Yeah. But living through a time of really having no money, I remember at one point just not knowing how I was going to pay the next rent. Ugh. And I thought, how could I go from this high you know, yeah. of Cambridge and the scholarship and the America uh, to not being able to pay the rent? Very humbling time. So what'd you do? Well, I remember in the end, I thought I actually 
actually have to come back to America because certainly some time ago, I don't know if it's as fluid today, which is an interesting thing to explore. You really did feel that things were possible here if you worked hard, if you had some ability. Yeah. Much more so at the time in Europe, which was very stratified. And I really wonder if that's still the case. Really? So I felt if I can come back to America, I can do okay. And like everybody, you have luck, good luck, bad luck. Things will fall away, others won't. But in the long run, I can do well here. And I never felt that would happen in France, which was a very bureaucratic and nepotistic yeah. society. And what I wonder today, I've been very involved in mentorship programs for kids in underprivileged backgrounds. Yeah. Yeah, you work with the with the big big brother big sister program. Yes, we created a program called the Women in Entertainment Mentorship Program, where I'd go into a lot of high schools in South Central LA, really tough parts of Ooh, the city, boy, yeah. and find talented kids, pair them with top level industry mentors, wow. help them go to university. This is how I got involved in education. Wow! And having been in those environments, I wonder whether the, those opportunities still exist. And that fluidity is still here. I don't know. Wow. How long have you been doing that for? About 12 years. How exciting. How, now, now let's think. Oh, it changed my life. I mean, yeah. uh, it was an odd thing because, you know, before coming to Chapman, I was the executive editor of the Hollywood Report for many years. Right. And by accident, I was put in charge of this big, glamorous event we would do called the Women in Entertainment Breakfast. And that meant booking the guests, organizing the program. Sure. And one year I thought, you know, we need to make it more relevant. What if we created a mentorship program, which was purely designed to make that gala event topical? And it ended up changing my life, I'm sure much more than the kids, and was an eye opener. What was the, what was the reception and, from, from the from the Hollywood side, from the, from the people that were there, how, how did people take that in? Cause I'm guessing you're doing mentorships with scholarships and, you know, money and time, which, you know, was the most valuable thing to give. I mean, how, how was the reception? Was there, uh, I mean, obviously on the surface, everybody's like, yeah, yeah, great idea. But then when it came down to it, was it just as, as forceful or, or meaningful to them as it has been to you? Yes. I mean, that's the amazing thing. Oh, it changed my view of Hollywood and people. Yeah. You don't think that when you're, you know, as I was then in your late 40s, you're actually going to change your mind about people's basic goodness. That's because, major. You know, I went from, you know, 20 years of covering the entertainment business, you know, where you're pretty much in conflict with people because every time you break a story, somebody is unhappy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's the nature of a scoop. Right. To suddenly seeing these very ambitious, very driven people who could often seem hard and egotistical, really putting themselves on the line for a young kid. Really? That's cool. Yeah. I, you know, we don't, we don't want to uh, jump too uh, far ahead here. We still have to figure out, how we made it out of Paris. Uh, what, what, what was your first like job where you're like, okay, this, this is, I'm going to make it. I mean, you've got a Cambridge university degree and, and you've got scholar, you know, I mean, you've done your time in America. Now you're like starving artist. What, what happens? Well, I continue to be a bit of a starving artist because the only way to come back 
was to take a job as a part-time assistant at a small newspaper. Okay. And was that like the, was that like the uh, way that they allowed you to come back to America? Card, you know, and uh, it was complicated and it was four years of, of working for no money running around, you know, doing errands. Sure. And I, I wish I could say that was a happy time in my life, but it wasn't, it was very depressing. Ah. And so I actually didn't get a proper full-time job until uh, I was around 30. Um, and then had the experience of being fired. And <laughs> uh, most people have been fired at some point. If it happens to you, it's not great. Right, right. In 91, there was a recession. So it was also then very difficult to find another job. Um, and what were you looking for? What was like, what was your, on your, you know, your list? Like, this is what I want. I'll take this, but, but this is, this is what I want to do. Cause at that time, you know, you, you've probably seen different av- or different areas of the film and, and, and the industry. What were you after? What was your plan? My goal was to make films. Yeah that time I was writing um, screenplays, it wasn't my gift. And so I stumbled into journalism, happened to be reasonably good at it, but it was my sideline. And at some point that tipped, and one day I really woke up, it was astonishing to, to suddenly have that moment of epiphany where you go, oh, actually, this is what I'm good at. Uh, and... And where did that start? Where did, where did you get your first taste of that? Well, I'd been doing it for a long time. And I woke up at 47 years old. <laughs> I know, with the shock of realizing I actually don't want to make films. Wow. And I didn't believe it was possible. You know, you hear about people going through change. Yeah. And you think, no, this can't. And I woke up thinking, this can't be right. This has been my dream from the age of 13. And I love film. Yeah somehow it had gone and have uh, you written any uh notable films have you have you done no. any films no no i could never make that work i was always much more comfortable writing prose than s- screenplays okay and so it was a shocking moment and but wonderful because instead of seeing yourself as a failed filmmaker, you start seeing yourself as a successful journalist you know sure no facts have changed in your life only your self-image. Sure, and I suppose you're, you're, you set your your goals to be experience. a different bearing, right? I mean, you're you're now looking at the, but you you must have done something before the Hollywood Reporter, right? So uh, before you got to the Hollywood Reporter, where did you get your taste of journalism that that kind of flared this whole thing? Well, as I mentioned, the, the, when I came back from Paris, I got the job at this paper, small paper in Los Angeles. Uh, which is how I got my green card. So I was an assistant there for four okay, years. Okay, okay. By the way, a part-time assistant for four years. Oof. Yeah. Paid but but you're, in, you're in Hollywood. You're in California. Things can't be that bad. You know, people don't realize that if you want to make it in the entertainment business, there is no set path. People have all sorts of ups and downs. And yeah. one of the astonishing things I came to find when I interviewed really famous and successful people is how many of those they've had in their life. Like you just know, strange run-ins or, or weird occurrences. I, I, I got to imagine that the people that you, you spoke to and you with your experience, it's who, you know, it's, it's running into someone, it's a connection. Somebody knows somebody. Um, Cause there is no clear path. There is no, 
you know, I'll go to Cambridge and then I'm going to do film. It doesn't work that way. You got to dig it out. And then your ability to deliver once you get an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Right. There are two elements there. Um, But, you know, I, I, I've been amazed when you, when you meet very successful people, Uh, there's often a turning point where that almost didn't happen. I remember um, years ago interviewing Anthony Minghella, who directed The English Patient. Sure. Won the Oscar. And he spent two or three years writing the screenplay, had all the money in place, was ready to shoot, and suddenly half the money fell through. (sighs) And maybe three weeks away from actually shooting, it was dead. Wow. And I thought, and luckily the rest of the money came in, but it could equally not have done. And I thought, wow, there goes your Oscar. There goes your career. You're back to being a a little indie British. Just like that. And three years of your life gone. I, Um, I, I don't know if I could, I don't know if I could stomach it. That's a lot. That's a roller coaster ride. To, uh, I, I did a round table, you know, for many years of The Hollywood Reporter, I did these round tables with the actors and directors. And a couple of years ago, I did one. We had some very famous directors and a couple of young directors who were very nervous to be on the round table. Brand new. Here they are sitting with some of the gods of the business. And what they didn't realize is as we we're ready to film the round table. I'm getting a little message in my earpiece from the producer saying, you better come out. This multi-Oscar winning filmmaker won't come into the studio. <laughs> and I went out and he said, you don't want me on this. My film's a flop. I'm a has-been. These guys are the future. And I thought it's astonishing because these guys of the future were the ones who were intimidated by this God. Wow. The God is terrified to come out because he thinks he's a has-been. Wow. And um, there's a lot of that, you know? Oh, I got to imagine there's a ton of that. I I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I have that thick a skin to, I mean, there's, it's such polar, you know, on ends of the gamut. It's like you got ego this and you got working hard this and you got cut here and you got money there. And there's a lot of pieces to the puzzle. Special thanks to the good folks at Grady Restoration. If you're in need of some insurance restoration work, not sure if you have any hail damage, storm damage, wind damage, give them a call. 952-472-1570 or look them up on the web at gradyrestoration.com. It's that time again, folks. 21 flavors of hard scooped ice cream. Located in Mount Minnesota, the Lost Lake Creamery is going to be opening soon. Looking at probably April 7th. Make sure to check out the website, lostlakecreamery.com. Located off the Dakota Bike Trail on the north end of Cook's Bay on the Lost Lake Channel. We'll be opening soon. Stay tuned for more updates. Give us a follow at Lost Lake Creamery on Instagram or Facebook for more updates. But you, you went to the Hollywood Reporter. Now, I had some questions about that. Now, you obviously probably started off as, as a journalist pounding the pavement, getting the stories, right? And yeah. I, so you had to have interviewed some amazing people. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, which ones stand out to you? I, I'm sure there's a ton of them, but like, like just wow. What, what, uh, not, not just because they're famous or whatever, but because they really made an impression on you and, and what you felt was 
a moving piece rather than just blah, blah. You know what I mean? Were there any that just blew you away? Yes. Uh, for different reasons, <laughs> you know, um, I'm drawn to people who are very complicated, uh, you know, not, not always easy or nice. And two of the standouts were Ted Turner and, and Hugh Hefner. Wow. And Turner, I, I spent a few days with him. He'd given a lot of money to the United Nations. We went to the United Nations together. And he was lonely. Really? Jane Fonda had left him. He had four rotating girlfriends. They all knew about each other. Wow. But none mattered him like she did. He was very open about it. He was yeah. still in love with her. And I thought, here's this guy who's a multi-billionaire, who's achieved so much, and yet there was a sadness to him. Wow. And that was reinforced because when the magazine came out, uh, it was a very positive piece. He bought 50 copies to send his friends. And I thought Ted Turner needs to remind his friends of who he is. Wow. Do you think he, do you think that's cause you're at such a level where people will just think you're untouchable and people just have the impression that, Hey, I can't call Ted today. He's probably changing the world. I can't, you know, call and, you know, shoot the, you know, have a conversation about baseball and just, just, you know, chaw on the fat for a little while because he's just at that level, which one of the problems with great success is it's very hard to separate your genuine friends from the ones who need something. Oh, I'm sure. But he's almost past that, isn't he? We're like, yep. but now he's at a point where there's, wow, that's crazy. Yeah, it, it was um, striking. And by the way, the other one that struck me was sort of similar. It was because Hugh Hefner, who was the most charming guy. Oh, I got to imagine he was a player. Extraordinary, generous and hospitable. And same thing. I, I spent, you know, three days on and off with him in the Playboy the mansion? mansion. And nice. the Playboy Mansion was this immaculate $100 million house with its own zoo. Yeah. Just wandering around. Everything was perfect with an element of tacky, you know. <laughs> sure. And, you know, the gigantic penises, things like that. <laughs> um, and he gave me a tour of the house at some point. That had to be just All overwhelming. Absolutely perfect. And then he showed me his bedroom, which was the size of, you know, your entire house. Yeah, right. And it was a tip. Magazines, videos, junk, littering the floor. Really? The bed covered with stuff, like a hoarder's place. You couldn't move. By the way, no sex was taking place in this bed, right? <laughs> it was too much stuff that had been there for weeks. Really? And it was astonishing. Absolutely one of the most astonishing moments to enter that room, the shock that hits you. And you think, what is going on inside this man? And my third visit with him was an evening. Once a week, he would invite his friends, and they were genuine friends, He'd have a lovely dinner put on for them. He'd screen a film. And before he screened it, he would tell you a bit about it. He would have done some research. He had notes. He'd scroll down. The one we saw was a Peter Sellers comedy, A Shot in the Dark. Mm. And he spoke. And then he sat down between these two blonde young women who were his girlfriends. Sure. They must have been 21, holding their hands. And then at some point, 9.30, movie's over. He goes to bed alone. 
says goodbye, and we're all left downstairs. And really? I remember thinking, you know, the King Midas myth is a very powerful one. It's sort of beware of what you ask for. Right. Because King Midas wanted everything he touched to turn to gold. Well, you can't eat gold food. You can't drink gold water. And here's Hefner. He has what every schoolboy wants, you know, at least right. I did. Sexy women all the time. Right. What he didn't have was intimacy. Because when you've had that, you can't have intimacy. You no. know, intimacy is about getting over an obstacle and going deeper, about dealing with someone and their problems. It's not about running away from this pneumatic blonde to the next one. And so he had everything but intimacy. And now here he is, eight years old or something. Was this during the, uh, they weren't really twins, but it was that Heidi and the, the blondes, the, the younger blonde. There was like three of them at the time, I thought. I can't remember who they were. That's just got to be. A, they were nice, by the way. Um, oh, I'm sure they're. Yeah, yeah. They're living the. They're living the life. I, 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 <laughs> yes. I got to think that 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 uh, just the people watching and the day to day operations of that house or compound or whatever you want to call it, it's got to be pretty pretty impressive. But just like the Ted Turner thing, you don't realize that these are just people that wanted everything. They got it. Now they you know, people don't know how to share that with them because they're on a pedestal that's at a different level that people can't relate to. You know what I mean? Where, you know, I've, I've, I've seen that. I've got some friends that are, you know, doing very well and, and people are, are different to react. And it's like, you know, they're just normal people. It doesn't, I don't, you know, I, I still, and, but I got to think that, you know, Ted Turner and even Hugh Hefner, I mean, just you're at another level. I mean, Hugh Hefner, how long was he what, 50, 60 years, 70 years he was doing that? Man, how long has he been gone? Has it been like five years now? I can't oh, remember. Oh, I think longer. Um, and what's interesting is, in Hefner's case, he had such a burning need on a very deep psychological level for the world to be different. And he created that world for himself and cocooned himself inside the Playboy Mansion, which had nothing to do with reality Certainly, as we know it. Yeah, right, right. And it's an extraordinary thing that the ferocity of his desire changed the world for him. Wow. You know, most of us have to adapt to the outside world. He made the world adapt to him. Now, is that good or bad? You know, it right. detaches you from reality, but it's also. A refusal to engage, isn't it? Wow. You know, that, so for all these reasons, he, he and Turner were fascinating. You know, what, one thing that's interesting is those really complicated people. You think about for years. You think, did I get that person right in my few visits? Because it's probably uh, totally different than what, uh, what the, you know, public persona is on the thing that you're, you know, you're digging deeper. And normally people just want to hear about the, you know, day-to-day -day fun, fun, girl, girl. But when you dig a little deeper, I bet there's a, there's a whole lot going on there or was. Um, wow. That's crazy. Very interesting. I, I, you know, I guess I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't have thought that, but if you think deep enough about it, you know, it's there, it's, it's the different. public persona is always different from the private one. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, and then on top of it, he can't go anywhere or do anything. One of of my young colleagues of the report had, you know, cut out a photo of this very big star. Yeah. (laughs) You know, who's decent and noble and extraordinarily handsome, but in real life is an alcoholic, abusive, rude, nasty, mean. Really? Absolutely. People would be shocked if they knew. Oh, there. Do you know about? Do you know? Do you know the backside of a lot of people like that? <laughs> like, no, are we, are we lot, covering I a book a here? Lot of, <laughs> a lot of the stars that I know are human beings. Yeah, and, uh, with good and bad, like everybody else. The ones I love, you know, George Clooney, I spent some time with. Yeah, and I admire enormously, enormously yeah. what he's done. What he's doing, what good he tries things to do for society, for sure. What's but that? all of them are human, and they are secure and insecure, driven and afraid and happy and not happy. Not that different from all the rest of us. Yeah. Are there, are there any that stand out that are like, were that were overwhelmed? You know, like George Clooney, he's at another level, but are there people that are at that level? Cause a lot of times, you know, I ran into this. I was at the gym one time and, uh, and you know, was in, in, the, in the locker room with a guy. And we had just had one of our football players or whatever was getting into trouble for whatever reason. And, this, and I'm talking to this guy about it. And he's like, you know, I got to get up. I got to go to work to provide for my kids and my wife every day. Like, I have to do it. Where if you're a you know, 21-year-old football player who just signed a $30 million contract, you don't have to get out of bed. You don't have to do anything, you know? And I got to imagine a lot of these people that they're talking to in the celebrity world are in that, you know, they have all these yes people around them. They have all this money. They can do whatever they want, whenever they want. And and there's got to be a real temptation to the dark side of alcohol and drugs and abuse. And blah. I mean, you must see a lot of that when you during your time, right? Yeah. And by the way, um, I don't blame anybody who has... Um, an addiction issue, you know, it's, it's a terrible thing to have to wrestle with. Oh, for sure. And I think if you have that nature, maybe, maybe everybody's susceptible. I, I've always been lucky because that's not my problem, you know, Right. but if you do, then the stress of public expectations can increase it. Oh, for sure. You know? Wow. Well, how, and, and so, what do you miss the most about being at the Hollywood Reporter? Because you're in a whole different world now. You're not. You're not even playing in the same sandbox. Well, kinda. My former boss asked me a couple weeks ago, "What do you miss?" And I said, "Nothing." Really I'm shocked. Nothing. No, I absolutely love this new job. I can't even tell you. Uh, at sixty, I just turned sixty-two. It is so great to have a new challenge. Oh my gosh! Well, it's okay. So. You're at the Hollywood Reporter and you're doing all this mentorship and and giving back to the kids and and helping out and and all of a sudden they come knock on your door and say, "Hey, what do you think about taking on a, a class load and 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 teaching at the university?" Is that is that how it happens? Or did you know somebody who knew somebody? So what happened is that when I started that mentorship program, I started getting very involved in education. And then at some point um, a year and a half ago, a recruiter approached me and said would you be interested in you know as the dean you are like the ceo of the film school yeah and i said yes it was the natural next step and um let me move to a different level of helping young people 
create a new mentorship program, which is in the works now for less privileged kids uh, to be able to come here. Wow. Uh, so it, it just took that to a higher level. Um, but I'm still writing. I love writing. Okay. I'm, I'm writing a double biography of Laurence Olivier and Vivian Lee. Wow. That'll be out next year. I, I would miss that terribly. Yeah. But I don't miss, I actually don't miss interviewing stars. I don't miss the, the cut and thrust of Hollywood. I keep in touch with a lot of friends. What, do, what, so but on the day to day, are you not, are you, do you have classes you're teaching or are you just running the organization, you know, like running? I'm running it. Yes. Yeah. Not teaching. I would you, would you ever, would you ever give it a teaching. run? Oh, I love, right. I mean, I love, I love teaching writing and most professors in the university only want to teach the advanced classes. Give me the beginning one. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's when you can make a mark. That's when you can give some people some, some real guidance. Wow. That's and exciting. I really love teaching. I started off teaching in a community college and I was very snooty and thought, oh, I only want to teach the really bright intellectual kids. I loved teaching the kids who came from, there was, a, there was a kid who just got out of jail from being in a gang. He had something to write about. Yeah. Well, and he's very when impressionable he too, evidently. Well, I, mean, I remember when he read, the other students read some of his script and I was praying, oh, please, please, please let him get good feedback. And he got great feedback. And I saw him soar in front of me. Oh, for sure. Wow. That's a lovely, lovely, wonderful feeling. What happens? So uh, when did you take over uh, at Chapman? Almost exactly one year ago. Okay. So now you know what I'm going to ask. What happens when you get the pandemic call and now we have to all of a sudden change everything? So you're in a new environment and and fresh fresh off of uh, Dean training and and now we have a pandemic. Nobody knows what to do. So how has By it way, changed you're things? Dead right. It was extraordinary. I'd given my notes to the Hollywood Reporter. I was going to leave and take a while to work on my book. The pandemic hits and I thought... I want to jump in there and get my hands dirty immediately. I don't want somebody else tackling this. Right. And so the weird thing is they shut down the university. So for the, my first six, seven, eight months on the job, I'd only ever been in my office for 12 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how are you? You're meeting staff over Zoom and you're in Everything your, is over Zoom. Oh my gosh. A life. And so people would talk about offices and buildings and studios. I didn't know what they were talking about. <laughs> Let me get my yeah. map out. Wow. Yeah. And, and even now I'm on campus now, I'm in my office, my associate dean is in the office next to me. The main administrator of the, of the film school is in the other office. There is nobody else. It is silent. There are no students. They're all, uh, they're all uh, virtual, right? Yep. Imagine a gigantic studio that is empty, you know, ready for the zombies to attack. So, so you've never actually seen it in full production? Like I actually have okay. because I was invited here about four years ago. Okay. By the then Dean who built it from nothing into this extraordinary studio complex. Yeah. And did an amazing job. Wow. Uh, so I'd seen it. I've seen and I was very four years ago back then. <laughs> wow. So what, what's it's the, what's the forecast? Day. When is it all on Newsom when you can let people back in or what, what? 
No, we're going to, we'd start letting people back in after spring break at the end of this month. Okay. I might, might expect to be fully back to normal in the fall. You will. Oh, that's yes. awesome. My, uh, are you going to be ready? <laughs> I think so. It's like um, getting a whole nother, a whole new job again. You got all this different yes. stuff going on. That's crazy. The hardest thing is there's a lot of student film production. Yeah. And, and the single biggest challenge you have in my job is you make, you make the decision. When are they going to start shooting again? And is it safe? And you know that your decision is going to impact people's life and maybe death. And that was a tough one. And I said to formed a whole advisory committee on this. We hired a full-time COVID expert. And I said, this is not, we can't be looking at probabilities. You can't send this challenger rocket into space saying it's probably going to be okay. Yeah. You have to say it's certain. And I said to the students, here's my thinking. You're going to be safe. You're going to be okay. But I don't want to be the one responsible for you then going home and passing COVID on to your grandmother right. who then dies. Right. Well, and there's no protocol. We've never seen this. We didn't know what to do. Right. And then, and on top of that, you're in a whole new world. That had to be just, you could write That's a book tough. about that. It's tough every week because every week we, we analyze it. Are we doing right? Yeah. And uh, we started shooting. We have unbelievably strict protocols. Oh, I'm sure. We have a COVID officer on each set. We have a limit how many students can be there. Double masks. And if something goes wrong, we have an emergency phone number. Shut down immediately. And this happened on the weekend. Shut down. And I was thrilled. Everything went smoothly. Somebody was sick. Shut down. Get the person tested. And it was a young actress who, as it happened, had vertigo. Nothing to do with COVID. And I called her. How did it go? And I called the COVID officer. How did it go? And it's all gone great. The good news is, I just heard this morning, last week, 3,000 people were tested on campus or who work here. Two were COVID positive, and only one of those was a student. Wow. Very good. Yeah, yeah. I think the numbers are on the downside, which is great, which is really going to help your environment because, uh, you know, I couldn't imagine trying to teach these these students the way what you're trying to, you know what I mean? Like that's very hard to do virtual you Yes. Know, when you like try, you know, there's so much to it. I do a, I do some, uh, boy, you know, my real job is voice acting and, and, and there's so much to it. That's very difficult to not like, ugh. so I, I, you know, I bet you're just ready to get, get going full swing, get them back in. So that's By exciting. The, way, the, the hit to the university world has been extraordinary. Oh, you yeah. Know, I mean, it's, you know, University has lost $100 million. Oh. And, and one of the ways you use it is students don't come. They decide to defer for a year. Yeah. But also what people don't realize is universities make a lot of money from their student housing. It's all empty. For oh. the very best, student housing is meant to hold three people will hold one. Wow. So around the country, all these universities have been very badly hit. Wow. Do you think, do you think it'll be re- recoverable in a time frame that's acceptable or is it like, whoa, rates are going up next year. Like I got two kids in college. So what's this going to do to me? <laughs> well, 
it's recoverable for us, but they're going to be the haves and have nots. Yeah. And uh, there are a lot of smaller, less established universities where it, they're going to be really hard hit. Yeah. You know? Well, and I, you know, my daughter's at San Diego and, oh. um, and she's, she's transferring. She's coming back to the university of Minnesota because they've been so restrictive that she can't do anything. She lives in her dorm. You know, she's all virtual. So she doesn't have to be there, but she can't go to other floors in the dorm. They can't do anything. And she's just like, this isn't the experience I wanted, you know? So even, even to what you were saying, the people who do go are like, this is not what college was supposed to be for me. So, you know, we need to make some changes. And, and, and it's not because of one crucial thing, even more than what you're able to teach hands-on. Like if we teach, this is how you use a camera. This is how you would film these acts in the studio. Even more than that is university is this transitional experience between child and, adoles and adolescence and being fully grown up. Exactly. And it's teaching to be away from your family, to navigate on your own, to deal with other people, to form relationships in a fairly safe environment. Right. This is what we're taking away. We can teach all sorts of things online. Right. Not I can get you to read Aristotle or to watch, you know, Jaws and analyze it. Right. We have editing teachers who have an ama amazing software. E somebody emailed me just before we started talking, um, a cinematography producer. He has lit sets with dolls and they look like a real thing. You know, all that you can do, you right. can't take away this social melting pot that I think is a crucial part of a university. Oh, for sure. I, you know, and that, and that was one of the, I've got a son who's a, a sophomore out in uh, Phoenix. And then my daughter's at San Diego as a freshman. And it's like, even his experience, cause he got caught in the middle of his freshman year. It's like, and now they're starting to loosen up and they're starting to like build relationships and have that actual, you know, experience of going to a university, which I mean, Hey, that's why we're paying all the money. You can get the education local, you know, unless you're going to go to Cambridge, that's different, but, but you know what I mean? Like you can, you can go local here and get a marketing degree, but you want that experience. And, and that, and that's, what's hurt the most is like, you just, you hate to waste that valuable time. Like you said, transitioning from an adolescent to an adult because you, you can't get that anywhere else. That's that's what the universities are there for. You know, to, to, and I think a good university absolutely embraces those things. Yeah. You know, when I was at university, there was the debating club. You would put on plays. Uh, you know, there were all sorts of people became very famous actors when I was at Cambridge. Emma Thompson and Stephen Fry and oh, wow. Hugh Laurie. They were all friends there. Nice. Uh, study abroad, which I think is an incredibly important part of university. Yeah. All these things are not detachable from the, the formal education. Right. And then I, I, boy, I, I admire that you, you really took on a big, uh, a big chunk there. I got, we, we, we don't have a lot of time with you yet. I wanted to ask a couple of questions uh, back to the Hollywood reporter. Um, how, cause you saw the time when we went from printing everything to digital everything what was that? I mean, obviously it was a hit. It's, it, there's no denying it, but how much did that change everything from day-to-day -day operations to the big picture? I mean, there's a lot of, uh, you know, I know locally here, some of our newspapers and some of our print stuff is just why even waste the time anymore? Nobody picks one up. Is that, is that, 
as obvious on the backside as it is on this side? To an unbelievable degree. And by the way, we're in the middle of that revolution. Yeah. Uh, we, we haven't come out at the other end, if there is another end. And it's had an extraordinary impact um, in several ways. First of all, within any uh, news organization now, everything is about the online product. And the print, you know, I get the New York Times delivered, but it's, it's going to go. It's only, only habit. That... If you're in the online world, there are lots of things that are different. First of all, in the old print world, you, you were delivered the important news on page one. In the digital world, your eye scans a lot of stuff and chooses what you want to read. Right. So it's a much more um, down up, you could say democratic approach to journalism. Secondly, Every reporter, consciously or unconsciously, knows that he or she has been measured by how many hits and readers and clicks he has. Right. So there's now not just the important or thoughtful story. There's am I engaging readers? Because they can so, break it down by who's clicking on what story so they know who's reading what. Sure. Mm-hmm. You see that all the time. When I was the reporter, we had screens up showing what the most read stories were at any one point. Yeah. And how many people were reading. So now the readership is thousands of people more than it was in print. The Hollywood reporter had, you know, 30 to 50,000 daily circulation when it was a, a daily trade, mm-hmm. 70,000 ish when it became a weekly magazine. It's got 24 million wow. uniques per month online. Are those, are those paying subscriptions online? No. No. Just people's perusing. And, and that's the next step that everybody's transitioning to because journalism made a gigantic mistake when uh, the internet hit. It put everything out there free. And the assumption was that the culture of the internet was free. We need to put it out there. Right. And now everybody's putting it back in the bottle because it's fine to give it free, but who's paying f- for your hard costs? Right. You know, your multi-million dollar budget. Well, and, 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 and that's, that's my, not sustainable. Well, and that's my next question is, uh, you know, you're, you're at a top 10 film school. I mean, you're teaching some of the brightest future in the industry. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I've just started watching a comedian that I follow writes on this show called the crew, which it's on Netflix. It's just a whatever comedy. But do you think we're seeing a lot of that same thing when you can produce, a, I think it's a, an hour-long show on Netflix, with no commercials? But, you know, there's a lot of the prominent, you know, Pepsi bottle all of a sudden in the shot or, or the back of the Apple computer. Do you think that's kind of where we're headed with advertising in? No. no? I don't. Absolutely not. I think that, first of all, the streaming world has completely changed the entertainment universe. Number one, the amount of money they're spending for production, for content, is astonishing. Netflix last year spent $16 billion on product. Apple, Disney+, Plus, all these companies, Amazon, they need to do that. They're not making money from it. Right. They're in a competition to survive. But are they Why? pulling that off of subscriptions then? No. At the moment, they're all in a loss-making game. Oh. But they're competing with each other for two reasons. Number one, 
everybody believes that ultimately there'll only be a handful that people subscribe to. So you want to stake yourself as the Disney Plus, the Netflix, and then one of the three others that's going to get your, your, your subscription dollars. But there's another reason that people are not talking about. If you're Jeff Bezos and you're running Amazon, you know perfectly well that as soon as Disney Plus really gets established, they're going to be using that television screen for, to let people buy products. And when you're watching Mulan uh, or Soul or whatever it is, or The Mandalorian, and there's a little sidebar next to it that just lets you order, it, first of all, Mandalorian socks, right? Oh, I see or, what you're saying. you know, a, a Pinocchio nose. Yeah. Well, that very quickly gravitates to, I'll buy a book on Disney Plus, I'll buy my groceries, oh. and Amazon is dead. Because why we go to Amazon is ease of access. Right. We've all right. given the more three clicks and got a book. You know, I go there all the time. It's easy. Yeah. If I can do that and I'm watching it on television. So Apple and Netflix and Amazon and Disney are ultimately in a universe of consumers who will use that to purchase, to do other things. Wow. So I, I what I'm looking at is you've seen the entertainment business go from having a handful of major studios in its origins, by the way, which survived a hundred years, Fox, right. Columbia, Universal, to being taken over by conglomerates. Uh, so Columbia becomes part of Sony, Universal becomes part of NBC um, and Comcast. Right. You are now going to see these being part of global empires that are all about shopping and access. Ah, oh, foul the money. Right. And so it. if you can give ultimately, and I don't know what the time frame is, if you can give uh, your possible consumer a Pixar movie free to get him, it's like Jeff Bezos is giving free shipping. Yeah. Guess what? This is, okay, we're going to throw out 200 million or 300, whatever that costs, to get you to come to us and subscribe to us because you're going to start making that your portal to the entire universe. Wow. When do you think That's we'll start seeing that? Thing. When do you think they'll start getting into that? Partly it's based on technology. Yeah. Because you got to have a way to based navigate. based on the shakeout of who dominates that entertainment world. Because otherwise you say to yourself, why on earth would Apple want to be in this game? Right. Wow. This is where they're going. And let's look at the speed at which this happened. Netflix just a few years ago was mailing DVDs <laughs> to people. Right, right. right. <laughs> now it is the biggest that. entertainment company in the universe. Yeah. So wow. we're not talking about 50 years from now. Let me make an analogy. Uh, you look at the invention of the printing press. And I've studied this in detail to see what I can understand. You look at the past to understand the future. Mm -hmm. When Gutenberg invented the printing press, the dominant literary art form was the illuminated manuscript. There were monks sitting in monasteries around Europe, painting gold letters on Bibles, 
there, were, there was a factory operation to create books. And each one was, took an enormous amount of labor. Gutenberg creates the printing press. Within 20 years, there were a million books in publication. Within 50 years, an entire industry and art form, the illuminated manuscript, which had been around for hundreds of years, was dead. This is all the result of the internet. Wow. Wow. But when is it going to be too much? Like, like uh, it seems to be going faster and more and more. And you know what I mean? Like, like look at uh, Bezos or look at the Amazon. I mean, these are companies beyond imaginable. And now I don't know the answer, because if you look at past revolutions, there's been a static situation, a revolution, and then there's a new world order. Yeah. The industrial revolution, everything was, you know, we lived in a, agricultural society the industrial revolution takes place and a hundred years later we're in, a, we're in a mechanized society right which then remains pretty stable i don't see us coming out on another plateau i think it's going to be change and more change and more change and more change it's just going to keep happening wow hey we got to let you go you got a hard out i i can't thank you enough for all the time you've been a, a joy uh, oh, so, so much, much good information man I, I i dig it i uh I had no idea we were going to go in some directions, but boy, was that interesting. I, uh, we may have to have you back on once you're back to full service in the fall. <laughs> boy, that's actually, they're coming back after spring break, huh? You got to be ready. That's I may awesome. be worn out. I may be a completely different person when you see me next time. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be more gray and then, oh, oh, this is crazy. Exactly. I, uh, I, as, uh, so everyone needs to go out and, and check it out. I, I, you know, I've, don't know who's been on the cusp, but they need to get over there and check out your university, man. I top 10 film schools. That's a big Number deal. Four, most recently at the rap, uh, which is really quite something. And most importantly, we are rising. Well, now that they have this new Dean there uh, with some, <laughs> with, and a few other people with some wind under his sails. Once they, once they let you meet the students, that'll really be big. <laughs> so Stephen Galloway, we thank you so much, man. You take care, stay safe and good luck after spring break. Thank you so much. All right, take care. That's it. That's the end. That's a wrap. <laughs> Read the shtick. That's a wrap for today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe and tell all your friends. If you'd like to reach out, you can use the studio line at 612-504-6500 or by email, the DK Project Podcast at gmail.com. And of course, there's always social media at the DK Project Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.